Veni, Veni, Venias, and welcome to our podcast. Welcome to Ask a Medievalist. I'm M, the Ask portion of our program, and joining me tonight, as always, is Dr. Jesse Noose. Hello! So, a long time ago, uh, a very long time ago, I guess, uh, my father gave me a book called 1066 and All That, A Memorable History of England, Comprising All the Parts You Can Remember, Including 103 Good Things, 5 Bad Kings, and 2 Genuine Dates. And the 2 Genuine Dates... (laughs) happened to be 55 BCE, which was the date of the first Roman invasion of Britain, and then 1066 CE, which is when uh, the Norman Conquest happened. So tonight, we're going to talk a little bit about the things that happened in between those two dates. Yes. Yay. Um, Yes. And it's also, it's the reminder that everything we kind of know about England... I mean, generally speaking, everyone's heard of stuff that happened before 1066, or everyone's heard of people who lived before that, um, or poems, perhaps. But it's sort of frequently removed from historical knowledge, which is to say, <laughs> there's this kind of weird sense, because of the way England has written its history, mm-hmm. really, they have perpetuated very purposefully in a lot of ways, I mean, to be honest, I was going to say not purposely, but really very purposely, um, this sense of this sort of eternal Englishness. And um, what that means frequently is sort of pushing the sense of what England becomes under the Normans, and then continues to be afterwards, um, sort of backdating that in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. Which is why Old English is simultaneously taken to be very English, but sometimes also doesn't quite seem actually English at all. Um, which is to say, of course, it's very Germanic. Mm-hmm. It's deeply influenced... I mean, they were Germanic, right? <laughs> this is kind of... So there are a lot of issues here that not only aren't dealt with, but, and not only are smoothed over, but um, are really ironed away. So we're going to talk about some of these. Um, but this is one of the big ones, right? That somehow English culture is eternal, right? So like King Arthur, King of the Britons, Monty Python, for example. Yes. Holy Grail. And I am Arthur, King of the Britons. And of course, I mean, aside from the fact that Arthur himself is, of course, presumably fiction, um, the people he represents, right? The men he represents, who are not fiction, um means something very different, right? Mm-hmm. Brit- British, in this case, would mean Celtic, uh-huh. right? And yet we tend not to think of Celtic as being British, <laughs> or not English, at least, right. right? So England has made English synonymous with British, and it's not, number one. And number two, English is not native to the Isle of Britain. Mm-hmm. English is a Germanic language. It is from the Germanic areas. For example, what is now Germany. <laughs> um, so, right, the Angles and the Saxons, and the Jutes, of course, from sort of Denmark, um, came swooping in. And that is why Old English is what it is. That's why we call it Anglo-Saxon. Um, and there are a couple issues here. So, Old Starting sort of recently, there's been a real push to refer to this 
as sort of old English culture with the emphasis on English because of the way Anglo-Saxon, of course, has been taken as a definer of race, right? Mm -hmm. So this idea that England has a whatever, you know, colonialism, right? Um, that there was this glorious destiny for England to be German and white. Um, so that's, that's the first sort of issue. Um, and then, of course, the second issue <laughs> is the frequent sort of forgetting that, in fact, the Angles and the Saxons were invaders, right? So the Celtic tribes that were there get sort of shoved out, right? So Cornish as a language is not related to Old English, for example. Mm -hmm. Whereas the Saxons and the Angles are all speaking Old Germanic languages. Right. All right. So, <laughs> um, when the Romans show up in Britain, um, they find, and they show up, yeah, just before the year zero, um, and they really get into it um, somewhat after the year zero. I mean, this is when they really start building stuff mm -hmm. and staying. Um, and they're there for about 400 years, so into the 400s. CE, common era. Um, and, you know, London, Londinium, York, Eboricum. Um, they're building all this, you know, all these places that we still know and use and etc. Um, and they are fighting. <laughs> they're fighting the English. Um, but in this case, we, of course, wouldn't call them English, which comes from the Angles, right? they're fighting the native inhabitants of the Isle of Britain. So they're really fighting the British, mm -hmm. if we want to call them that. The Britons, right? The Britons, Britannia. Um, and they're Celtic. So this is who they're fighting. They're fighting the Celts okay. in Britain. Obviously, right? So Scotland and Wales, famously, are still Celtic. Um, and that sort of gives you a sense of where the Celts got pushed to. Now, they were Celtic already, <laughs> But a lot of other Celts got pushed out of what becomes England mm -hmm. into these areas. So, for example, we eventually we get, like, Hadrian's Wall, famously. Ah, uh, yes, to keep the Scots out. Yes, yeah, exactly. So that's in the north, um, and that is, right? That essentially cuts off Scotland from what becomes England. Um, so, yeah, so this is this, is this sort of sense of... Um, and that's built sort of, or it's begun, it's built in the 120s. Okay. So, yeah, the one, the 120s. All right. So, um, yeah, so that's, that's Hadrian's Wall. Um, so the British are fighting the Celts, and probably most famously, um, we've got some important things that do happen in Roman Britain. So, one of the important things, um, that happens in Roman Britain, really interestingly, is that Constantine is at York, Eboricum, um, when his dad dies um, in 306. He's not... His dad isn't the sort of... And he is not the sort of automatic <laughs> emperor. Right. <laughs> um, his takeover right. is more complicated than that. His dad is important. He's kind of in line, but not necessarily direct line. But... He's at this distant outpost. <laughs> His dad dies, and he manages to get himself crowned, basically, by the troops. So he is crowned emperor in York. 
Um, and he will become the Roman Emperor, of course, as we know. Mm -hmm. And he will convert the Roman Empire to Christianity. So he is very important. He becomes very important. Um, and York is sort of instrumental in this moment. So there we are. This is Roman Britain. That's 306. Um, before that, long, long time before that, um, in the 60s. So I mean the 60s, like 60 years after the year zero. Okay. 60 CE. Like, yes. <laughs> um, Boudicca, who is a famous queen of the Assini, um, and she, she's fighting the Romans, right? So she's sort of one of the famous leaders who fights the Romans. There are statues of her today. Um, she's Celtic, right? The Iceni are a Celtic tribe, kind of around modern Norfolk. And I realize I'm in Virginia, so of course we mean Norfolk in England, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> but it's a reminder of how these places travel. Yes. Right? Um, now there's a Norfolk in Virginia, because Norfolk. Because of reasons mm -hmm. the English came over. Anyway. Much like there's a New so, South Wales in Australia. Yes. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Everywhere. I mean, I mean, Virginia. Anyway. So, yeah. So here we are. Um, so she is Celtic. She's fighting the Romans. She's one of the famous sort of um, warriors to fight them. Um, all right. So Rome has its own problems, basically. Um, and this is why eventually Rome kind of leaves. In the early-ish 400s, um, how early in the 400s is a little bit debated. Mm -hmm. um, there was a time when people were like, oh, it, like everything emptied out. They were gone. Um, and now people are like, oh, maybe a few decades later. <laughs> Some of these things were still being built, were still being lived in. But in the early-ish 400s, so like probably sort of the first quarter of the 400s, maybe by like 430, the Romans are probably getting out of there, gone. Mostly gone. Maybe some people are still around, but generally speaking. Um, and of course what this does is leave a giant power vacuum, basically. Okay. Right? Um, there are people who are like, you know, looking for an opportunity. Of course. Um, and so some of these people are in Germany. They're in the northern Germany. Um, it's possible that they have been already um, moving into what would now be like northern France and the Netherlands. So it's not entirely clear, right? Um, they are certainly Germanic peoples, but they do end up sort of pushing into Gaul, <laughs> Frankish areas. Um, so they're kind of expanding. And when the Romans kind of clear out of England, the British Isles, right? Um, they're like, aha, this is a new place for us to go. and We won't have to fight the Romans. Mm -hmm. Um, so they do go. <laughs> so who are, who are uh, and they? these are the these are the aforementioned Angles, Saxons, and Jutes. Oh, that's J U T E S, Jutes. Yeah, we know. They don't not get mentioned very much in the phrase Anglo-Saxons. The they do not. We don't know a lot about them. Um, yeah, that's about what can be said. Oh, okay. <laughs> we don't know a lot about them. The, so here's the other thing, right? The problem with this period is that. There's, there aren't a lot of records comparative to other periods in some ways. Right? This is what happens when people, when there's a lot of war. Or when. Sure. Yeah. I mean, basically, when there's a lot of war and things fall apart, records get destroyed. Books are made out of things so, that can burn, ultimately. 
Yes. <laughs> yes. Um, things are not being written on clay tablets. Some things are being written in stone, but of course, you know, very specific things. Mm-hmm. Um, not long, detailed records. Yes. Um, and so there's a little bit of a um, issue with certain things just not being sure, right? And so the archaeological record gives us a lot of this or confirms a lot of this, right? This is the flip side, um, is that the records that we have, many of them come from just a little bit later. And they're, of course, you know, I mean, medieval chronicles. So there can be parts of them that are very accurate mm-hmm. and parts of them that may not be as accurate. Um, and so there can be a lot of, like, attempts to confirm or, or not confirm things. Um, but also we have the helpful fact that the Angles and the Saxons are the ones who really kind of take over linguistically, culturally. Yeah. Um, the next question is to what extent do they intermarry with the local population and just install their language? Cause obviously a lot of the Celtic languages disappear except in areas of like Wales and Scotland. Mm-hmm. Um, to, not entirely. I mean like Cornish, there are other things that are still around, but a lot of stuff starts to disappear. People still speak Cornish. Well, um, not so much, but it does stay around into the Middle Ages. Oh, okay. so, like, there's a play written in Cornish. There's stuff. Yeah. There's stuff written in Cornish. So we have later medieval stuff mm-hmm. in Cornish. Yeah, we talked about um, so, yeah, Cornish, some of those in our early episodes, right? Um, yes. Yeah. 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 So there's so there's stuff that sticks around, um, but but a lot of things do start to disappear. So um, to what extent is there sort of intermarriage? To what extent is there maybe violence <laughs> slash eradication to what extent are people just pushed out into other areas like Wales and Scotland. Um, it's not always entirely clear. So this is definitely up in the air. Um, but anyhow, <laughs> uh, this is sort of what's happening, right? So they come in and we end up, there are sort of different areas in what is now England Um they get kind of divided into territories. Um, and so these are the territories that kind of stick around here and there until 1066. Um, they do become unified in different ways, this and that. Um, but most of them, listeners will notice, are still around at least in name. Um, and they still maintain important um, sort of unitary <laughs> um, iconic significance, a lot of them. Um and there was also the fact that sometimes even when places would be unified, when there'd be more violence, they'd kind of split back apart into these original units. Mm. Um, so the fact that these ten, that these are still place names in England, um, there's a reason for that. So they go way back. Um, not all of them, but many of them. Okay, so one of the ones, uh, we're going to start with Northumberland. Uh-huh. Um, readers of Shakespeare will know that. He comes up a bunch. Yes, he does. Absolutely. <laughs> um so Northumbria, which is in the north-ish. Okay, um, fair enough. So Northumbria, yes. Um, and it, yeah, it's important. It's a, it's an important kingdom. Or, I don't know, we're going to call it a kingdom. <laughs> it's an important unit. Um, it is a bit of a kingdom. It's its own thing at, at various times and places. So it's, it's definitely important. It is independent-ish at various times and places. Okay. York is in Northumbria. Right. So it had a sort of important um, Roman place. 
obviously London was also an important Roman place, um, but York is also was definitely important. Mm-hmm. Um, and so this becomes a sort of important um, area. And it's one of the places where the church really gets set up in England very early. Um, so remember the Romans mm. kind of leave in the 400s. Um, we have a dude named, named Augustine shows up <laughs> and um, he ends up setting up his his seat, basically, right? His seat. Um, Wait, be Augustine? Like the saint? Uh, same name, different dude. Okay. Yes. <laughs> I mean, he took his name, obviously, from the original dude. Okay. I was saying, like, um, the original dude was, like, in North Africa or something. Like, that's a long trip. Yes. So, it's a different <laughs> guy. Okay. Yes. That's yes, easier. Yes. Yes. Also, of course, I mean, St. Augustine um, is... Yes, he is not only, I mean, in North Africa, of course. A little bit earlier. Um, he is in, yes, he's like 350-something to 430-ish. Okay. Um, and so, yeah, he's, he's been, he's been and done. He's done his thing. He's, he's been famous. Um, and Augustine, this dude, <laughs> is a monk, of course, right? We got monks. Um, remember, at this point in time, um, priests... Are, can get married. They are not super important. And by important, I mean they can be very integral to society, but they are not powerful. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they do not have political power as a group, really. Right? This is the time when monks are sort of the powerful, you know, political frequently come from money, generally, right? That's how you manage to, you basically have to have a dowry to enter a monastery. Um, yeah, so we have Augustine shows up. Um, Pope Gregory the Great picks him to basically go, um, evangelize slash Christianize, Mm -hmm. I guess, um, the British Isles, England specifically, um, sends him off there. All right. So off he goes and, um, he, he does not choose London (laughs) as his seat he chooses canterbury Hmm. um and this you know it's one of those open kinds of questions um why necessarily um but it seems that augustine probably felt he was going to have more power and more influence hanging out in canterbury um canterbury it should be noted is in kent Okay. Um, another name we might recognize from, like, King Lear, for example. Um, Kent. Still an area. Still around. Mm-hmm. Um, it's important. It's one of those, as I said, sort of separate entities that is frequently its own separate entity. Um, but it's never quite as politically powerful as Northumbria and some of the other places we're going to talk about. Um but it does have this sort of going for it that apparently <laughs> it was sort of open to Christianity. Um, and that is where Augustine sets up in, in Canterbury, in Kent. And uh, that then becomes, and of course still is, really the main seat of religious power in England. Oh, yes. Right, the Archbishop, the Archbishop of Canterbury Bishop. is the sort of, yeah, he's, he's the main dude in England. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's where so, they're going in the 
Canterbury Tales. Absolutely. Yes. Of course, right? Yeah, they got murders eventually. All sorts of the good things happen over the course of the Middle Ages. <laughs> yeah. Yes, yeah. So Thomas Beckett, of course, become who was the Archbishop, becomes martyred. Um, mar- a martyred Archbishop. Yeah, all this stuff. So Canterbury's remains very important. Is important, remains very important. Um, but in some ways, this is a sort of um, interesting fact about early England, is that it's in many ways a huge mess. Mm-hmm. Um, as a lot of Europe is. The thing is that we're so used to it after 1066 as being a nation. <laughs> That's a much, much easier story to tell, um, is England as a nation, mm-hmm. right? Um, and they're, you know, before that, they're just not. But it's such a mess. <laughs> There's so many things going on in different places. It's hard to get a cohesive narrative about England, right? There, there isn't really one. And I, you know, I keep calling it England, which I probably shouldn't, I should be calling it like Britain or something. But, um, yeah, there's not really a cohesive narrative, but there are these different interesting specific things, right? So like religiously, England is slowly Christianized. Um, you know, this is still kind of early. Yeah. If we think about it this way, right? Um, so the fact that, um, you know, that Augustine shows up at this time, um, you know, yeah, that's pretty, that's still pretty early. So, um, we're looking at, you know, the five, the five hundreds, the late five hundreds, you know, very late about the border with 600. Um, but this is sort of, this is still pretty early for that center of power. Mm-hmm. And the fact that it remains that center of religious power is really impressive. So even though Kent right, um, is not going to become one of the kingdoms that really sort of ends up ruling it all. <laughs> um, Canterbury, religiously, is going to remain the center, um, or at least manage to hang on long enough that it, it ultimately still is today. Mm-hmm. Right. So, um, so there's some really interesting things there, right? And of course, it's not that other places don't contend. It's not that London doesn't become, a, I mean, obviously, you know, there's tons of stuff that goes on. This isn't simple. It's not like, Augustine sets up in Canterbury, and then, like, from then on, Canterbury is undisputed. No, 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 no. Nothing like that. But, um, it never goes away, and it remains sort of the premier place today, actually. So, yeah. So there's some interesting aspects to that. Um, that being said, (laughs) while that becomes sort of one of the seats of power, we go back to Northumbria, um, for our sort of religious philosophy in England. Um, so we've got <laughs> Bede. Ah, yes. This is B-E-D-E, the Venerable. The Venerable Bede. Yes. Um, we talked he is about in, the... in our Easter episode. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and so he is in Northumbria. Yes. Okay. Um, and yeah. And so that means a few things. Number one, he writes famously the ecclesiastical, ecclesiastical history, um, of England. And so this is one of those histories where some parts of it may be very accurate. Um, he actually seems to have a, he has a good handle on where he is. He has a pretty good handle on Kent, probably kind of because of Canterbury. You know, he's writing people there to be like, what do you know about history? And then there are other things that are presumably a little more fictional. There are also things, of course, that he kind of, you know, he has a story he wants he to tell. entirely, potentially. 
or thereabouts. Yeah. <laughs> Whatever, you know, these things happen. But he has he has some stuff he's trying to do. Yeah. yeah. Um, In his defense, it's a lot. A lot of it is good stories, you know. It is. Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, and you know, he gets his point across, right? So he's um, sort of six seventy three to seven, circa six seventy three, of course, uh, to seven thirty five. So that's Bede in Northumbria. Um, and Northumbria is important. He, so Bede teaches um, Alcuin of York, who is also an important um, early medieval English scholar. Um, and he doesn't teach him directly, but like one of his, you know, students teaches Alcuin or whatever. He's, he's in the lineage of Bede. Um, and so Alcuin of York, he's actually born around the year that he dies, um, 735, and then he lives until like 804. Um, so we have this sort of, right, so Bede sort of starts off this kind of lineage of scholarship in this area. So North, Northumbria becomes very important. Um, they've also got their own saint, Cuthbert. Um, okay. I think I've was, heard that name before. Yes, probably. He's popular. Um and important. <laughs> and yeah, Cuthbert stays around, of course, as a name, right? Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, but he's, he's important. Um, and he's an early saint. Um, he is Northumbrian. Um, he's in the sort of mid, middle of the 600s is when he lives. And Bede, of course, you know, this is Bede's kind of local saint. And this sort of helps this area um, maintain this really sort of important, um, seat. And one of the things that they have, um, I think Cuthbert is also known potentially as Cuthbert of Lindisfarne. Um, Lindisfarne is a sort of island off of Northumbria and becomes the home of a really, really important book, <laughs> basically. <laughs> and that's the Lindisfarne Gospels. Oh, okay. And the Lindisfarne Gospels, of course, are from Lindisfarne. This is where they are written. Sort of circa 700. And they are astonishing. They are... Pe I mean, people listening, you've probably seen pictures. Um, because the art, the illumination, is among the most... I mean, <laughs> the, uh, it's just astonishing art. Okay. It's astonishing art. Um, but it also has clearly a very sort of, you know, people might say like Celtic inspired. Uh, <laughs> but yeah. of course it, it is Celtic. I mean, it's not just inspired. This is a place where lots of recently there have been lots of people who are Celtic. Um, that being said, you know, the manuscript, it's created, of course. And then as it exists, um, eventually it does accrue things like um, an Old English gloss shows up later, um, is added to the text. It's because, of course, the text is in Latin, right? Mm -hmm. This is <laughs> as it would be, right? Um, but yeah, so it's this incredible, incredible, incredible book. And we are told, um, theoretically, who created it, one of the bishops of Lindisfarne. We may have mentioned this before, but anyway, um, that he probably was the artist. Um, this is what we're told, and we 
have, you know, scholars have kind of decided that it's quite possibly true, um, that he was the artist of the illuminations as well as the scribe. So that this, so that the monk who became bishop, um, Edfrith, that this is basically what he did. Um, he created this thing. It's not the only thing he did, obviously, <laughs> but, uh, it's an incredible thing that he did. So he definitely spent time on it. Um, and it's astonishing, and we've talked about books, so the fact that he probably is both the scribe and the illuminator is unusual, for mm-hmm. sure. And the level of artistic skill is truly extraordinary. I mean, it's really unique. It's just, you know, um, it's amazing. So, um, and he's, he's bishop around 698 to 722 when he dies. And we don't know if he started this before he became bishop, but... He must have kept working on it for his life. I mean, so there we are. So um, Northumbria with Bede, uh, with Alcuin at York, with Lindisfarne and the Gospels, um, it really becomes this sort of important religious cultural. um, Yeah. Does that make sense? Religious cultural? Yeah. Religious. um, Thing. Touch. (laughs) Religious cultural center. Touchstone. Yeah. Touchstone, yes. Um, so while Canterbury sort of starts off the sense of, you know, this is going to be a seat kind of the power, um, we have the sort of, and this is unfair and simplistic, right? But this is sort of how the story gets told when people are trying to tell it, right? Um, that sort of the culture, the philosophy of religion is coming out of Northumbria, mm-hmm. even as Canterbury is making itself and will manage to maintain itself eventually as the kind of seat of power. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, all right. So Northumbria is important, obviously. You got all the stuff going on there. We should mention that in addition to Kent, we also have Essex and Sussex. Okay. That are also not, not as important really in the story as they should be, but we do want to mention them. They're obviously still around. And, um, yeah, there they are. So we mentioned <laughs> Essex and Sussex are okay. still around. You've probably heard of them. Um, they're still around. But, all right, so Northumbria. Okay. Next up, we have Mercia. Um, and Northumbria, while it is and sort of has this great religious center and philosophy and all these things, um, as a seat of power, um, it maintains its independence on and off in various ways. Mm-hmm. We'll discuss that a little bit. Um, but we have a rising power in Mercia. Um, Mercia means border. Um, and so this is the area by that is in what is now England, but is borders on Wales. Okay. Um, and eventually it becomes known as the Marches, which comes from Mercia. Right, M-E-R-C-I-A. Um an Italian pronunciation would give you Mercia, for example, right? So it becomes known as the Marches. And the Marcher Lords are the English, and now we really are talking about England, so this is later, um, the English Lords who um, are subjugating Wales, essentially. Um, but that word comes from originally Mercia, which means, which means border, and it is this border country. It's more than that. I mean, it becomes a sort of big power. Um, but it is, there's a definite line, like, <laughs> with Wales, right. right? Wales is now the sort of, currently, right, when we're talking about Mercia in the early Middle Ages, Wales is the unsubjugated 
Celtic tribes. Mm-hmm. And Mercia is uh, building its power and delineating itself from Wales. Uh, and the most famous king to do this is Offa. That's O-F-F-A, who famously builds a dike um, that, you know, like Hadrian built his wall across the north of England to just, you know, sure. delineate it from Scotland. Um, this one cuts off what is now England from Wales. Um, did Offa really build the whole thing? Unclear. Hmm. But his name becomes attached to it very quickly. He, if he didn't build the whole thing, he may have improved it, lengthened it, um, very much build that wall type of a thing. It is not so much defensive as offensive, okay. for sure. Um, it wasn't so much to stop the Welsh from invading him as to give him a good place to, you know, threaten them from. <laughs> um, and, yeah, off a... You know, he's he's one of the big names. He has a really long reign. He consolidates his power in Mercia. When I'm saying border, like, eventually that is what it means. Um, and the marches become in, you know, later medieval England there, that the border area. But Mercia as a kingdom really takes up a big old chunk of what is now England. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, it's a big old chunk. It's not like just a strip along the border. It's a big chunk. Um and so Offer really helps make that happen. Um, and he sort of helps, um, the rise, the rise of Mercia, um, which then it, it's, you know, a little bit one of those things where there's only sort of one big power kind of at a time. So the rise of Mercia really kind of su- starts to supplant some others. Although Northumbria, just because of where it is, it's, it's always kind of there doing its thing. Um, but anyway, so the rise of Mercia, He's really consolidating his power. Unfortunately, a number of things happen, which is to say he doesn't have heirs who live a super long time and continue his legacy. Okay. Um, his legacy is important. I mean, it continues. His dike is still there. Like, you can go see it. It's very famous. But um, basically, you know, we get this sort of rise. We have Offa who does all this stuff. And then <laughs> we're starting to run into a period where some other things are going on. And one of the other things that is going on is that the Vikings are occasionally raiding the coast. Aha. That sounds like something they'd... Yeah. You know, and they start doing this pretty early. I mean, you know, they're, they're showing up occasionally, and certainly in the 700s. Mm-hmm. Um, they, are, they are raiding <laughs> happily. Um, but, you know, then they go home. Um, and there's this sort of interesting question. And, of course, the Vikings, right there from Scandinavia. But they have also been raiding, I mean, Scandinavia, right, if we look at the map, um, they have also been going directly south to Germany and Gaul. So what is kind of now Germany and France, the Netherlands, right? They've been raiding them as well, um, for sure, right? So they, they've been raiding them, and then eventually they kind of go to England as well. They're kind of raiding England. But they spent a lot of time um, really fighting it out in, with the Carolingians, who are in Gaul. Um, and so they don't have a lot of time kind of maybe to spend on England right away, mm-hmm. we could say. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, they're when they're raiding the coasts of England, they're, that's not where their main business is, right? Their main business is really with the Carolingians. It's like a, a side trip on the way down or something. Yes. 
Yes, apparently because, uh, I mean, who is to say? But of course, as far as the Viking records seem to suggest, they found England a fairly easy place to raid, <laughs> basically. Okay. Um, and it's worth pointing out, right, Offa, um, who dies in 796, and he's king of Mercia starting in like 757, right? And so mm-hmm. he dies in 796. Mercia is, right, if we can think of our map in our heads, right? Remember, it borders with Wales. It has a big old chunk of England, but it is not on the coast, mm-hmm. right? Which is to say not on the east coast, <laughs> which is where the Vikings are raiding. Right, they are raiding, ra- they are raiding the east coast. Um, so this is another reason why he probably, you know, has a great time in consolidating all of his stuff and all of his power because Mercia is not getting raided by the Vikings, but some other people are Northumbria and uh, the kingdom essentially right of East Anglia along mm-hmm. the coast. East, you see. Yes. Yes. Um, and so, yeah, so they're all kind of getting raided occasionally and, you know, it's, it's one of these things that happens. You put up with it. Um, but yeah, so Mercy is doing its thing. So we have Offa. Um, but, you know, the fighting with the Carolingians, the Vikings are starting to maybe get a little restive. They're really building up their power because of what they're sort because of some of the other ratings and the fighting that they're carrying out with sort of Gaul and such. Um, so they're starting to look around a little bit. Um, meanwhile, <laughs> all right, we have... East Anglia, which is east. <laughs> yeah. Um, east Anglia is super, super famous these days. We don't have a lot of records for it, is the problem. But it was clearly some incredible stuff was happening, <laughs> because that's where Sutton Hoo is. Okay. So here is Sutton Hoo. Um, and Sutton Hoo is, of course, the famous, famous, originally, I mean, it's a burial mm-hmm. location. But it's now, it's sort of that whole site. This is a relatively recent discovery, I believe. Not Well, at this point, it's got to yeah. be 100 years old. <laughs> yeah. About. Not but, quite, actually. you know. 1938. So 1938 is what, yeah, it's found. Re- relatively recent. But yeah, I mean, absolutely, right? That until then, yes, until 1938, um, no one, I mean, this is the, so this is the other thing, of course, about assuming that things are legendary. Right. So King Arthur's a human is legendary, but also there are people who, I mean, didn't pull swords out of stones necessarily, but in as much as a lot of the, the politics and the sort of fighting and some of the stuff going on in those stories, a lot of those things reflect stuff that certainly happened in English history. Mm-hmm. This brings us also, of course, to Beowulf, which is in Old English. Um, when was it written? I mean, anyone's guess, but... <laughs> you know, it could have worked, you know, 8th century could have been written later, but nah, whatever. Um, could have been written as late as like the 10th century, but you know, we'll go with 8th, why not 8th century. Um, Beowulf was frequently seen as, this is the interesting thing, right? It's in Old English, but it seems so clearly kind of Scandinavian, right? Norse, Viking-like. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet there are ways in which it doesn't. There are ways in which it clearly does fit with Old English culture. But there was a real sense um, that that the people writing it were copying 
not just, you know, Scandinavian poetry, which is not really what they're doing, but that, um, that there are things in it that they're copying Scandinavian customs. And of course, the big argument was the end, you know, his sort of funeral pyre, um, that that must have, that there was no evidence that something like that had ever happened in England. Spoiler alert. Scandinavia, yeah. There are ship burials all over the place in Scandinavia, but not in England. Yeah. This hadn't happened in England. You know, a funeral pyre of that magnitude, of that richness, etc. So, yes, absolutely, right? When Sutton Hoo was first discovered, um, yeah, I mean, minds were blown. <laughs> the idea that this thing had been hiding mm-hmm. in a little hill, not so little, but in a hill, um, just blew everyone out of the water. Right. Uh, and now, of course, you can go to the British Museum and you can see the original artifacts and also people who have been, you know, craftsmen. We have talked about crafts, craftsmen and women, um, craftspeople who still work in like Anglo-Saxon sword making and things like this, who have recreated these artifacts so you can see what they looked like before they were put in the ground for a thousand years. More than that, like 1,300 years. Um, the Sutton who is probably, so the, the main burial, the one that we all think of, is probably from around 630. And we can date it because of coins. Uh-huh. The body is gone. They tested the soil. There was a body there, but it's acidic, I think. And whatever. So anyway, the body is gone. But And that's one of the reasons why the metal is so degraded. Mm-hmm. But, you know, there was enough left of enough stuff that we could tell... Um, and yeah, he was buried with these coins that give a clear date. I mean, you know, nice. <laughs> can't be buried before, etc. Right? So it's basically like 1630 seemed to be the, the year. Um, so the coins have like give or take somebody's bit, like reign of king such and so or something like that on them. Yes. Yeah, he's got coins buried with him that were not available earlier basically uh-huh yeah um so so, so around six thirty is the you know that seems to be it um they know therefore who it probably is oh and his king redwald um that's are the ae smushed together mm-hmm. <laughs> redwald um yeah he because he fits the he was a powerful king, and he fits the timeline, and he's basically the one who does. They were like, it could have been his son, but it, it doesn't actually seem likely. Like, he's he's probably the one. Um, and, yeah, it's this incredible, incredible, incredible find. Um, and, of course, people basically call it, like, the Beowulf helmet, <laughs> the Beowulf yeah. sword, um, because the helmet, they, they fit exactly what you imagine the author of Beowulf was thinking about. Right, and the helmet is just incredible. I feel like it's been on the cover of some of the translations. Oh, 100%, yes. <laughs> that helmet. Probably. Because yeah. the helmet is this amazing helmet where um, the a helmet was made so that you had... This is obviously a ceremonial helmet, but a, even a real helmet that you wore in battle. It was made specifically with sort of extra guards, extra metal over the eyes and over the top, mm-hmm. like the crest. That's why you had a crest, Right. They grow into, like, ceremonial plumes and stuff. The real reason you have a crest, like a big strip of thicker metal going over the top of your head, Mm -hmm. is because if a sword comes down on top of your helmet, it'll stop it. Oh. Right? Sure. Um, The reason you have a big sort of extra piece of metal over your eyebrows and over your nose is the exact same reason. If they bring a clonk down right in the center of your helmet and your face, then it'll hold it, that you won't get your nose cut off or whatever. Mm -hmm. 
Um, or your head split in two, either way. So this helmet famously has a bird. And if you look at it, right, you see it. That the wings are, like, spread out over the eyebrows and it's spread oh, out over the head and the yeah. tail is the nose. Yeah. Um, and it's brilliant. It's absolutely brilliant. It's remarkable. Um, yeah. So it's this extraordinary find. Um, I think Netflix has a movie about it that I think they just did. The Dig. Oh. You know, slightly fictionalized. Okay. Um, but in real life, um, there was a pair, a married pair of archaeologists who worked on the dig and the wife actually found sort of some of the first stuff. And then there were two women who were, I think, vacationing from London, something, whatever. And they were photographers and they started taking pictures and they actually stayed for like a couple of years, whatever the, oh. the length, um, to photograph the site. Um, so, yeah, so this is, so Sutton Who becomes this sort of incredible, incredible touchstone because, <laughs> um, the sudden proof that England did have things like this, right? Um, that England, in fact, did have not only this type of burial, first off, <laughs> right? This sort of ship burial, right? And in this case, right, where it's, you're layered with all of your stuff and then it's all buried with you. So it's not put out to sea and burned, right? It is all mm -hmm. buried. Um, so that, first of all, which is just an extraordinary thing. Um, but secondly, the level of craftsmanship, which speaks not only, of course, to the wealth of the person, you know, the king who's been buried, um, but also the level of trade, right? The importance of all the trade routes that you have, that you can get all this stuff, mm -hmm. right? Um, and there's some things that are buried with him where people are like, you know, different ideas about what these could have been. And there's a sort of recognition that these, a lot of these things are probably things that someone maybe was given, maybe looted from like somewhere else and brought over. Hmm. Right. So there's this reminder of, you know, trade routes aren't always like, you know, sometimes it's they're more not a friendly thing. Stolen good routes. Yeah. Like, they're both of these things going on. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, but, anyway, the, the sort of main point, um, that it really speaks to the network, right? The, so the wealth, the prestige, but then the network of goods that's arriving on these shores, right? And yeah, finally, that sort of extraordinary fact that, um, that this turns out to exist in England. So suddenly Beowulf as a poem, um, seems not it's no longer a poem that is deeply old english but a little bit aspirational mm -hmm. towards you know scandinavian whatever um it it's just deeply english hmm. right um and so the, it became a you know it was a nice way of sort of proving the national poem now obviously there are some issues with that but beowulf is written shortly after this period so um you know i mean <laughs> it, it happened and you could know that it happened. So, so there we are. So that's East Anglia. Um, there is some discussion. I mean, one of the reasons why we don't have as many, um, records and stuff about East Anglia, <laughs> about Redwald and, you know, everything, is, is because, right, it, it is raided a lot. And eventually this area will be taken over by the Vikings. So we do hmm. have clearly what was this a remarkable kingdom, but, um, in some ways, unlike some of these others, like Lurthumbria, Mercia, um, and the one we're going to finish on and then continue with next time, we're going to pick up 
with um, next time. Um, East Anglia really, because it does kind of get <laughs> overrun, we could say, I guess, um, it, it becomes Viking territory. I mean, it becomes a Viking settlement. It is known as the Danelaw. Uh, we'll talk more about that next time as well. But a lot of that really does kind of eradicate what had, what had been there before. Mm-hmm. Now, obviously, not entirely, because, like, Sutton Who yeah. is still there. We found right? it. So, yes. Um, but when it comes to things like papers and, you know, more fragile things, um, that stuff did kind of disappear a bit. So that definitely becomes one of the one of the issues with it. Yeah. Um, all right. So I just want to say we will pick up with sort of with the Vikings next time and when exactly they show up and take over. But we have to leave with sort of the final kingdom, which people who know what we're talking about might be wondering why we haven't mentioned them yet. And that's because really we'll concentrate on them next time. Um, and that is Wessex. Aha. Wessex is a name that doesn't survive in quite the same fame. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um in Shakespeare or wherever, or even in modern English, you know, counties and things. Um, but Wessex is the kingdom that is generally seen as the foundation of England as a nation. Um, and the guy we're going to talk about is Alfred the Great. Um, mm-hmm. And he, <laughs> as it happens, sort of becomes king the year the Vikings decide they're going to make a real move on England. Um so we will discuss what he does and why he becomes the great and other such things. Um, but obviously he, he is the start then. Wessex, um, he becomes sort of, he's thought of as the first English king. Um, when you look at lists of kings of England, there's, you know, you all, you get all the separate kingdoms. And then once you get Alfred, um, it, you usually transition into English kings. Oh. So um, he's the start of what? is generally considered English kings, quote-unquote. And Wessex, in fact, that line is still, I'm pretty sure, (laughs) on the English throne. Um, There's a bit of a hiccup here and there, obviously, 1066. We will get into a little bit of that as well next time, because we'll sort of finish with that. Um, But we'll talk about Alfred and Wessex, we'll talk about the Vikings and the Danelaw. Uh, We'll talk, finally, about, we'll talk about some of the old English poetry and my favorite, the riddles. Yes. Yes. Of course, Tolkien, you may know riddles. He didn't just... There's a reason why riddles exist in Tolkien, and that is because they exist in Old English. Okay. <laughs> um, the Exeter Book of Riddles, the Old English loved riddles, so Tolkien sticks them into The Hobbit. But the sort of um, big finish as well is that ultimately, despite 1066, because of certain marriage, etc., you do end up with descendants, descendants of Wessex on the throne hmm. uh, via Henry II's mom, the wife of Henry I. Okay. Um, so, starting with Henry II, um, all of, you know, anyone who sort of descended from that branch <laughs> hmm. um, is, is ultimately a descendant of the house. I guess we could call them a house? I don't know, the kingdom of Wessex. Yes. So this is sort of one of the reasons, but also because of what Alfred does, that they become the, um, they become seen as the foundation of England. So it's it's not everybody, but it's a lot of them through to at least like, the Glorious Revolution. Yeah, and stuff like that. And then of course it depends on, you know. But the problem is because she's so far back, 
probably some of those people are too. Oh yeah. I forget that all the royalty right? <laughs> in, in in Europe is related to each other. They're all yeah. related to each other. That's why hemophilia and things. Anyway, <laughs> yeah. Ignoring that. <laughs> oh dear. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. But anyhow, all right. So hopefully we have set a little bit of a foundation, I guess. Um, for the Romans, right? We do have some interesting things under them, like Boudicca, Constantine. Um, and then we have the sort of rise of Canterbury and Kent. Canterbury is important. Kent is maybe a little less so. Um, but Northumbria is important, but also religiously, philosophically, religiously. It's got some great stuff going on up there. The art of the Lindisfarne Gospels is just astonishing. Um, we'll p- post to like the British Library site or whatever, and but also yes. just Google it. Um, Mercia, the rise of it as a power with Offa and, you know, his earthenware, earthenwork dike <laughs> that he built, um, on the border with Wales. Um, and then finally, as I said, right, the Vikings who are encroaching, we'll get to them and to Alfred the Great in Wessex next time. But Wessex, we should point out, has just been biding its time. I mean, it's, it's been there this whole time, but it will rise to the front shortly. Yeah. So that's, that's actually pretty, um, you know. That's a manageable bit of history. The the thing about that makes it weird is I said the the Angles and the Saxons themselves and the fact that they come over and kind of shove everyone else out and what's going on with Celtic Britain, that's where all of the mess sort of a lot of histories find it easier to kind of ignore all that. Yeah. Um, which is a huge problem because the reminder that England, I mean, the English are not native to England. <laughs> Right, the Celts are. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So there are definitely some issues, but yes. Well, I mean, they've been there for a long time at this point. At this point, yes, absolutely. <laughs> no question. But England, of course, it's worth pointing out, continues as a colonial power. Like, the Angles slash Saxons, mm-hmm. the English, um, really, really got their colonial on. Mm-hmm. Yes. Know, they started when they came over to England, and then they eventually will move out to the entire world. <laughs> yes, the sun will never set on the British Empire. That's yeah. It. Although, now. But, I mean, this is the weird part, right? Um, it might still not. All the former colonies are still yeah. pretty spread out. Like, yeah. they own some islands in the Pacific still that it they might... They still got tons of stuff. Yeah. yeah. Not tons, but they still got stuff. Um, and they're even, you know, they're still kind of, con- they still have the Commonwealth Games, right? Mm-hmm. So there's still this way in which they see themselves as connected to their former colonies. Um, I mean, we just found a uh, 20 Canadian, you know, maple bucks lying around the house, and it has a picture oh, yeah. of Queen Elizabeth on it, so... Yes. Yes. I heard, I'm not sure if this is true, maybe I should look this up before I say it. Um, that Canada just took down a statue of the Queen. Huh. Yep, toppled Queen statues being assessed. Federal conservatives want them restored. Wow. Um, so they did not officially take them down, of course. Uh-huh. <laughs> yes. Yeah, statues of Queen Victoria, Queen Elizabeth toppled in Canada. Protesters have toppled statues of Queen Victoria and Queen Elizabeth in the Canadian city of Winnipeg. Winnipeg. So there you go. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Um, and of course, right, uh, Victoria headed the empire, but Queen Elizabeth, you know, still queen, um, mm-hmm. but not technically of Canada, but kind of technically of Canada, which is the weird, weird thing. Yes. Um, but this is due to the fact that 
Canada has been finding, this is maybe not the note to end on, but um, the remains of, well, indigenous graves, unmarked graves at, at the schools, mm-hmm. right, when um, children were forcibly removed from their parents and sent off to be re-educated, essentially. I um, thought that the schools yeah. were run by the Catholic Church, though. Yes, absolutely. Um, but it is, of course, it was overseen by the, the Empire, as oh. it were. The U.S. had a lot of these problems as well, mm-hmm. but not overseen so much by the Empire, <laughs> overseen right. by us yes. as a country. Yeah. But in this case, right, that it was sort of overseen by the... Yeah, we've done enough of our own toppling of statues. I'm sure that will continue, too, so... Yes. I mean, I don't think we have any to... I'm pretty sure we don't have any to British monarchs. Mm. No, not... I mean... A ton, but not to British monarchs. Um, Only... Well... Yeah. No. We... It's weird, because... When you think about how long the Confederacy lasted, like... We were... We were British for way longer. Yeah. As a... As a... But those statues... The colonialists were... Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But now we just lionize yep. the British in the press because, um, yes. well, the accent is nice. I mean, come on. Right. Except recently. I feel like we've we've got a little wary of them recently mm-hmm. <laughs> with Brexit and Meghan Markle and all the rest of it. Yeah. But we right. took them. I mean. Yeah, exactly. They're Meghan here. and Harry can be ours now, right? <laughs> yep. Exactly. Yes. Um, okay. Alfred the Great. Is finally conquering beyond his yes <laughs> his home island, yes reconquering beyond his home island, yes yeah. um yes absolutely and okay. of course Harry I mean we're going to talk about a lot of heralds yes I mean he's well I was going to say course, that but we're going to talk about a lot of heralds Northum- Northumberland yeah. Harry Percy yeah. is from Northumberland yeah and I was yeah. I was about to say well. Because they were separate for so, for, you know, on and off, is that why he's, mm-hmm. like, so independent and rebellious? But then I realized he's a historical person, not just a character right. in a play. So, right. <laughs> But no, they did have power. That is yeah. the point. Yeah. They had, had a lot of power. And it's not necessarily as obvious, I mean, certainly to Americans. I don't know what the Brits learn in school, honestly. Um it may not be, it's certainly not as obvious to Americans these days why, you know, the names don't necessarily mean anything to us. Mm-hmm. But yes, historically, Northumberland as a territory had a very independent streak. York famously had a very independent streak as a city. And then also as it, people, people who are connected to York, certain yes. dukes of York, um, had very independent thoughts about things. Uh, religiously, there, there was, Definitely differences of opinion. York, very Catholic, for a long time at least. Um, Guy Fawkes. Oh. You know, I mean, so, um, yeah, I mean, there was, there was a lot of, uh, frequently there were, (laughs) there were issues. Yes. Um, with that region. That region, yeah. Okay. Cool. Mm -hmm. Well, we'll continue this next time. And get into all the exciting Wessex, Danelaw, and uh, yes. Riddles. Riddles in the Dark, Yay. I hear. Yes. Okay. There's some awesome, awesome ones. Cool. Well, thank you for talking to me. 
And thank you to everyone for listening. Uh, you can find our website at askamedievalist.com. You can find our Twitter at, at askamedievalist. You can find our Facebook page on Facebook. Probably just search for Ask a Medievalist or something like that. And uh, you can email us at questions at askamedievalist.com. I think that's all. Everybody have a great, I don't know when this is going to go, uh, probably a great autumn. <laughs> and uh, keep it medieval. Ask a Medievalist is a production of This Can't Be That Hard Studios and is not endorsed, acknowledged, or condoned by Virginia Commonwealth University or any of its constituent departments. Our theme music is Veni Veni Venias from Carmina Burana by Carl Orff, performed by the MIT Concert Choir and licensed under a Creative Commons Attributional Non-Commercial License version 3.0. If you enjoyed our podcast, please rate us and leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Also, why not tell a friend? For more on today's topic, including sources, annotations, and corrections, visit our website at www.askamedievalist.com. And if you have questions, feel free to drop us an email at questions at askamedievalist.com. Thank you.